Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's episode, episode number five of This Must Be The Gig. I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and my goal and our goal really every week is to document the one gig that changed an artist's life. So whether it's the absolute worst, whether it's the best, the one they'd prefer to really toss out the window and let it just be dragged by a bunch of feral rats in an alley, we'll cover it. And and obviously, when I say artist, the concept of an artist doesn't stop at a musician. In the weeks to come, we'll dive into the world of live music. And that really includes choreographers, costume designers, and set designers, and venue bookers, and festivals. And there are so many things and people to cover. It is overwhelming. So without further ado, here with me in the studio is engineer and producer Adam Kivel. Hello. Hello. How are you? That was very serious and officious. Hello. I know. I feel like I feel very serious today. I don't feel like bogged down by things. I just feel like things are the way that they should be. You're inspired and ready to go. I think that's what's happening. Um, I'm ready to go. And it might have to do with who you chatted with this week. <laughs> I mean, that, that is a smart point, son. <laughs> that is a clever point. It is especially special. Double special. Du- it's a double special. With a side of fries. (laughs) I wanted to get into it very quickly. Speedily, you might say. Real speedy. Can we we add a badumbo (laughs) chilter? For years, Sadie Dupuis of Speedy Ortiz has been one of the most inspiring voices and human beings in the music world. Her toothy indie rock anthems have spoken from a place of real and beautiful honesty and strength. From bedroom pop beginnings to stunning debut major arcana, all the way through to their brand new record, which I love, Twerp Verse. That is the name. I'm not calling you Twerps. 
The band's entire catalogue is really full of some life-changing gems, like No Below. That's my favorite song. What else is your favorite song? I like uh, Raising the Skate a lot. Ah, that's a goodie. What about You Hate the Title? That is my favorite on the new album. They're all songs that really help flip a switch and push your brain onto a more positive and mindful track. Even following Sadie on Twitter and on Instagram, it will make your day, I promise you. Bear witness. It will make your day infinitely better. Through funny, charming thoughts and links to pictures of dogs that are even named after her, or through messages about hotlines to report unsafe concert conditions, spread conscious veganism, and even get in touch if you can't afford to get into one of their shows. It's kind of a cozy little conversation that covers everything from the magic of a really great cup of tea, the majestic influence of Gwen Stefani, and even her parents' history in the music business, among many other delightful topics. You will laugh and you may cry, and you will probably immediately click on to speedyortiz.com to buy a copy of Twerpverse and check out one of their amazing raw live shows on their tour that has just kicked off. I believe the day this drops will be their second show on the tour. So go and grab your favorite mug and join us. a little bit fast because i've definitely had matcha oh nice. t minus 10 minutes ago so i'm like i'm like <laughs> halfway into a mate right now so i'm gonna be uh, right <laughs> we're gonna be flying <laughs> it's embarrassing how much caffeine affects me after i cut out coffee yeah same i don't miss it i just i love the smell but i don't miss what it like did to my body I started using a coffee scrub in the shower and that's like the same difference to me like I get the smell and I don't have you to feel okay. anxious. Yeah. I could never like function. I could never have a proper conversation until I had a coffee, which is really dangerous, right? Like if you can't function at a, as a human yeah. without a liquid. And I don't feel that way with tea. Like oh, I still no. drink caffeine, but it's just like, it's yeah. Nice. Yeah. So do you know about rooibos? I, I, do, yeah, I do drink rooibos. <gasps> so that's from my hometown. Oh, <laughs> it's that's South amazing. African. Yeah. Yeah, I love rooibos. I, I don't know how, but somehow I will send you. I have like the real rooibos from back I'm home. I'm sure that I'm drinking like garbage, fake, <laughs> fake No, they just, they just fancy it up. And like we have what you called fresh pap, yeah. which is like literally the, it's so, it's dirt cheap. All it is, is just a non-fancy bag of rooibos tea. There's nothing, oh, there's not like infused with cinnamon and the smell of lavender. Like there's nothing, yeah. which is delicious, but... The real rooibos, like fresh off the soil, is amazing. And I'll send you some because every time somebody comes from South Africa, they have to bring me boxes. So now... That sounds amazing. <laughs> I, I know. my. Unfortunately, my house is kind of full of just rooibos tea bags. And I think I might have a little bit of a problem. I drink, I drink it in a way that I think is not correct, which is I really like to make a latte with it. Oh, no, that is correct. Oh, it is? Okay, cool. See, rooibos is so amazing. It has no rules. I don't know if there's like a... <laughs> I feel like I'm speaking about it like it's my child. It's, a little bit. You know, it's more your child than mine. So well, I'm happy it to It is now both our children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But and what do you do when you're on the road then? And you're trying to like get a pick me like do you do you just 
do you drink alcohol? Do you like drink energy drinks? Yeah, I drink alcohol. Um, I try not to drink too much of it because just like I'm older <laughs> than I was when I started doing this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't feel very good if I get drunk every day on tour. So I try to like pretend like I have a real normal nine to five job and then like weekend warrior it. Like yeah. if we, I'll be like, oh, we have Saturday in like Chicago. I guess that'll be my <laughs> night to turn up a little bit. I drink a ton of tea on tour. Like I'm traveling with like my thermos and all my tea bags, and, like a I cooler mean, of like. Yeah. I mean, it sounds it sounds bad, but like I also so I don't really I don't drink, and so that's also why I stopped drinking coffee because I was a smoker. Like yeah, I was. I sound like one of those old like I was a smoker, but I really was <laughs> for a really long time. And it yeah. was so it was the smoking and drinking coffee and drinking alcohol was all linked. For yeah. some odd reason, my brain had decided to like stitch them all together. I and think then, that's pretty common because they're yeah. just—it's all like stimulating the same parts of your brain, right? And unfortunately, so I had to like chop it off at the head and then like go cold turkey. So every time somebody asks me to like go for coffee, I'm always like, yeah. "Can we find somewhere where ha- where you know oh, it's tea. nice tea?" <laughs> I have to show you my like tweet about this because oh, I really. I'm always, like, emailing people, like, hey, let's meet up for a coffee, which just means, like, let's hang out. Yeah. But I don't drink coffee. So I've just started <laughs> saying, like, hey, let's meet up for a tea. And I'm trying to, you know, speak my truth. No, but re- and it, it sounds, I mean, in the beginning, you feel a little bit embarrassed, right? Because you're not only, like, refusing their good coffee, which is, like, the big thing in, the, in our culture. But you're also, like, creating this, like, fantasy about tea. Because tea, I feel like, has, I don't know, I put it on a pedestal. I feel like yeah. tea just solves, it solves a lot of my shit. I, it just is very comforting. I, I feel, I'm sending you my tweet right now. Oh my God, please. <laughs> but, you um, have the best tweets. Don't look at my tweets. I am horrendous on Twitter. I don't know. I like, I feel like you. I'm mute. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so sorry that you did because no, no. Instagram for me is a very easy portal. It's like, okay, I can just like dump my brain as yeah. a visual. And then Twitter, I feel like I say so much crap. To everyone That's around me, no, but like oh, out loud. So you yeah. So I'm exactly. So by the time I like go to my phone to like say something, I'm like, oh, but I've said that already. This is so boring, and then I become bored with myself, and then click off in a panic. You asked if I leave the house, and I don't. <laughs> so all of that goes to Twitter for me. <laughs> that, I mean, like anything I, I would say an- to a human, yeah, like which I, who I don't see, yeah, just goes to Twitter. I speak a lot to my plants lately Mm. which is very it's not like hey I'm weird and I talk to my plants it's because I have no other thing at my home it's good for them too absolutely and also I'm dying for a dog but I've just moved here so it's been like a long process of fitting in and trying to transition without putting somebody through that yeah you need to like get settled before you put a dog in there absolutely and so I feel like I've just filled my home with like a jungle because it's overcompensating for not having a friend there. And obviously, my husband is not at home because he's at work. I do get a little bit panicky when I think of things like Twitter and Facebook. Not because of what it does to my brain, but because I almost feel like there's a responsibility to let people in. And yeah. that means that I have to be unbelievably vulnerable. 
Mm -hmm. I suppose you do that with your art. You put yourself out there all the time. So you're kind of used to that. I don't know if those two things are, you know, the same. Well, it's funny, like, so before I started, or I guess right around when I started this band, I was in grad school for poetry in an MFA program. And so when I started using Twitter, it was because all my poet friends were using Twitter. And I feel like if you, I mean, I'm sure you follow some poets on Twitter, like Mm. Dorothy Alaski does the Astro Poets thing. And Mm. Melissa Broder does like So Sad Today. I feel like poets are just really good at like constantly making weird jokes on Twitter. Um, Absolutely. So I think I come more from the school of like weird jokes on Twitter. Um, (laughs) than like the I don't know like I don't mind making vulnerable jokes because I think that's what I learned from (laughs) I look up to people who are as open as that like you care about things but to not care about what people think like you're just really just sharing but it's because I don't tell these things to anyone in real life so I just yeah they just go straight to Twitter. <laughs> I wish that like somehow I could like plug my brain into Twitter without like thinking and then it could just go there without me actually having to open up the application, see that like massive weird bird flying at me and then like, boop, boop, you know, and then I'm on. You need like a stenographer to just basically, what say. <laughs> or like a social media person. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine? Hey, I'm unemployed. <laughs> are you hiring <laughs> oh my god would you be my tweeter <laughs> but you have to come live with me unfortunately uh, I, in that chicago weather i just couldn't deal no i have a be- <laughs> i have tea i have roy Foss tea <laughs> you got plans <laughs> yeah <laughs> with the poetry i think that that's fascinating do people often put those two things for you together like oh you write poetry yeah i feel like every question is like so what's the difference between the poems and the Why? lyrics um, there's so much difference <laughs> i know i'm just like it's two art forms i it's don't know it's just people connecting the dots yeah. because it is in their mind you're being introspective about your life and you're able to articulate that whether that's on the paper to be read or that's on the paper to be sung so yeah. I think I do understand that, but it is, compl- do you get a completely different feeling? Because I mean, that's what I would imagine you would. Yeah, they're so different. Like, I don't know if you do other kinds of writing apart from the like music stuff. Do you, um, yes, a lot so, of like, weird what, writing, yes. <laughs> what kind of what kind of projects so do you So I, I write a column for GQ back in South Africa, which is a sex and relationship Column, oh, nice. a... my favorite kind of thing to read and listen to. <laughs> um, I will send you some stuff. It's yes, very, yes, very rude and very I'm going to send you some questions. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> so, see, you have to come live with me. It's very rude. <laughs> it's very dirty. It uses my imagination. Like, I just have friends that have always been really open about sex, really open about their preferences and genders. And so I've never not heard stories. And to turn that into kind of column where I can just talk absolute shit and be silly, that allows me to, you know, write about music sometimes. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I think it's the same kind of thing, like just working on different kinds of creative projects, even though it's different writing styles, like makes the other one better. I don't know. They like complement each other in nice ways. Are you always writing? No, I go through, I really do more of the like manic thing of like, I'll do long stretches where I'm not really working on anything creative, Um, especially in the months leading up to a record. There's so much like daily grind, unpaid labor stuff (laughs) that I just don't. I mean, I guess I wind up doing writing, but it's like interviews, you know what I mean? Or it's like, this 
site wants you to write something that's more in the music criticism vein of things, but it's connected to the, the press cycle. So I guess in a way that's its own creative process. And I did used to do music journalism, so I, I guess that's its own thing too. But when I'm so, or doing music videos, it's its own creative thing, but I don't really work on writing poetry or writing music when I'm like setting up a record because I'm so focused on the songs at hand that it's like hard for me to give mental the mental energy that like a new song would need. Mm. So usually like I go through, I always go through like a spurt of writing. So probably when we're done touring on this record, I'll have like two months off and I'll be writing a song or two every single day. And that will be sort of what I pull from. And that's sort of the nature of like, I guess being self-employed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not like showing up one place every day to work on the same thing. It's like every single day, it's something so different. So I don't always get the chance to work actively on like being creative and writing something new which is a bummer because that's I like I mean when I had day jobs which I did forever until I started touring full-time I would come home from work and like be so psyched to work on a song Mm. whereas now I'm like spending all day on the the work surrounding those songs and I'm like oh I don't feel like writing I want to like watch tv and not think about music absolutely because it gives it (laughs) it gives it agency when it didn't really have a name so it gives it it gives it that face and yeah. then you land up having to focus on that face, which automatically makes you feel like it's not, like maybe it's too big. I totally hear what you're saying. Every time somebody asks me, like, how have you freelanced for nearly 10 years? And the truth is you have to do something other than just the freelance, whether that's yeah. like walking dogs or babysitting or doing something completely different, like working on a production set. Or You know, there's so many yeah. ways diverting that focus sometimes really helps you harness that process because the process can get very claustrophobic I have no idea how it is for you as a songwriter but I can certainly relate from just the writing perspective it really gets it gets a lot it's like yeah and I think also like it's easier to draw inspiration for creative projects when you have something else occupying your brain I'm supposed to get inspiration to write songs by like answering interviews about writing songs all day oh, yeah. you know like ah, when I when yeah. I worked at like I used to work at um I mean I've had all sorts of weird jobs but I mm-hmm. worked the most recent one was um I worked as an instructor at a college teaching writing and wow. I would come up with so much music just like the really long walk from the faculty parking lot to like where my classes were <laughs> like yeah I would just be like oh here's a good idea for a song and like sing it into <laughs> my phone and then when I came home from teaching classes for the day like the whole night would be just making demos of those songs. Mm. Whereas now I'm like, I'm just thinking about this stuff all day long. And it's not an escape from anything to go write music. I feel like I'm saying that I don't like writing music. Like I love to write music. It's my favorite thing. I just, Thankfully. it's just not a daily, it's just not a daily practice for me right now. It's yeah. like no, all I hear you. energy that would be after work will go into like a two or three week stretch where I'm just writing all day, every day while I'm off tour. Luckily, this is not uh, one of those things where I can like turn this into a clickbaity headline. (laughs) She hates music music writing. (laughs) I appreciate that kind of shift in process. Can you imagine if you were just doing the same thing forever? And I think that that kind of condensing it into two months of like writing every day and really focusing on that. You tour so much. I can't blame you for wanting to be at home. And yeah. I was talking to a friend yesterday and I was like, is it like bad how much I don't leave the house and I'm antisocial? And he was like, you're no. on tour all the time. Like, what are you exactly. talking about? Like, you just haven't left the house. You've just been like home <laughs> for a couple weeks. Like, but your you- body is so used to and so wired. But it feels to me like I've never left my house. <laughs> I was like, 
in the two weeks since South by Southwest, I've, I've like hung out with you know, one friend. I wonder if people have like a Sadie like spotting, you know, like if they see you like leaving your house, like <laughs> I know. there's a red alert. Definitely. I mean, I live in, I live in West Philadelphia and there's so many musicians in my neighborhood. And so like, if I go to the grocery store, I'm very inclined to run into touring band. So I feel like if I am spotted out of the house, it's like, oh, you left today. Like, good. Good for you. Like a clap and applause as you yeah. leave your house. <laughs> I'm going to stand with like a boombox next time. No, that is very creepy. I'm so sorry for even entertaining. It's, you know, that's very rom-com, actually. I know. I feel like I want my life to be one. Like, I'm always looking for those moments. Like You want to be John Cusack. And... I mean, I... It's unfortunate that I feel this way. Sometimes there are moments where I'm like, how can I make this more dramatic? And then I think of like, you know, like a tumbleweed or, you know, when the flower (laughs) releases itself off the stem and flies into your hair. Like none of that ever happens to me. I'm more likely to like trip and unfortunately make terrible sounds on the way down. People find it embarrassing to admit that they love 90s rom-coms. And all rom coms in general. Oh, I love them, and I'm really into. Yeah. Uh, do you watch? Do you watch much TV? Yeah. So I loved Mindy Project, and that was like um, my favorite show, and it's yeah. over now. But I was just, I had, I mean, I had um, surgery, and I was like recovering for a week. Nothing major, but um, I, you know, had basically a week of bed rest, and I watched the entirety of Jane the Virgin. Do you watch oh, that show? I've never watched that show, but I've only ever been told to watch that show. It's been it's like, incredible. It's wow. like everything that has made me mad about other TV shows I like. Like mm. my biggest problem with Gilmore Girls is like all these people are having unplanned pregnancy and somehow abortion is never an option. Like, excuse <laughs> yeah, me. You, you, um, you're not a real. And I, I feel like Jane the Virgin centers around some of those same <laughs> concepts, but like abortion and like a woman's right to choose is always an option like a lot of the characters are queer like Mm. it's exploring like latina family dynamics like and it's got this rom-com element that's also infused with magical realism and it's like the same thing you're saying like the jane who's a the protagonist who's a writer will like see it in her mind as like you know beautiful flower flowing into her hair (laughs) see what's actually happening it's so cute and sweet and it's just like it's doing everything right. Uh, so I watched all of it. It's There's like 76 episodes or something. I watched all of that in a week. So it's like... <laughs> I think that's why you haven't left the house. I that's mean, that's exactly why. why. TV is so good. Why would I go out? I've been having... This is totally off topic, but I've been having this conversation a lot with everybody around me because I feel I'm a semi-intelligent human being and I like feel a lot and... I'm good and kind, but then I really love watching terribly trashy TV, terribly trashy TV, and nobody... Like, how trashy are we talking? I, I... um, (laughs) Fess up, come on. Like, so the other day I watched Vanderpump Rules. Okay, hell yeah. And Real Housewives of New York. And then they now have Real Housewives of Melbourne in Australia, oh, Cheshire yeah. in England. Do we get those in the U.S.? No, but I do you can it illegally. I, yeah. I, I can get it for you. Nice. I'm not like an illegal internet wizard. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> you know, you're, like, you're caught out. But it also started about around the time when stuff dips, you know, when life dips a little and you're feeling a little bit down and yeah. a little bit dark. I turn to that because I can also work whilst I watch it because it's so mind numbing. Mm-hmm. 
mindless. Yeah. And then I don't have to ever enter into any kind of deep thoughts, which are usually left for my writing or my partner or my friends sure. and family. So it's I haven't worked out exactly the psychology behind the fact that I'm like binge watching all this shitty TV. I do the same thing. I think a lot of the TV that I watch, I got into because I do, um, I work on visual art projects a lot too, um, right, whether that's definitely. for like, because I, I do all of our album artwork and sometimes I wind up, there winds up being a lot of like supplementary art for like merch and posters and whatever. Yes. And sometimes I do it for other people as well. And sometimes I get commissioned to do illustrations. So I think we just all love to be overstimulated all the time. So like mm-hmm. rather than just sitting and working on these art projects. Or even like putting on a record, I'm like, I'm going to binge watch this whole TV series like while I make this album artwork. So that oh, by yeah. the time the artwork's done, I've like watched a whole series of TV. You don't want anything that's too intellectually demanding because you're already giving half your brain to what Absolutely. your hands are doing. No, really, I could, maybe you really should be my social media manager and my manager of life because you've just put it know, got, so perfectly. We're like, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you you put it so perfectly and I feel like exhausted a lot of the times like last year I watched the whole of Buffy again I have not watched Buffy for a stupid reason and like so many of my friends who love Buffy like every other show in common with me like I'm Veronica Mars is my pinnacle like I know that I'd love Buffy I am deathly afraid of snakes and I can't even look at them oh. and I have been told that there are a lot of snakes in Buffy so I'm like I could watch Buffy but I'd have to watch it with a friend Censored. who can tell me when to look away or just like an edit Edit out all the snakes. The episodes, okay, yes, there's a storyline through and through, but, like, you can miss a few episodes in the... But I can. I'm, like, I'm obsessive with stuff like that. I have to watch it all the way through oh, from, like, start to finish. Oh, no, well, then that's <laughs> it for I never you. You'll never get to know her. You'll I never know. get to know Buffy or Willow. <laughs> I'm just going to keep, like, saying all these names. Like, I know who they are. I, I know who the characters are. I've, like, read some of the comics. I just, like... <laughs> It's sad, really. I yeah, want to watch Buffy. Know. They know that you haven't watched it, too. There's a hole in your lexicon. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that you are deathly afraid of snakes. What happens to you when, it, when you see a snake? Is it in pictures or moving? Anything, 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 yeah. Even talking about it, I don't want to talk about it then, I'm sorry. I'm, like, in a good mental way right now, so it's okay. But if I was, okay. like, more fragile, it would not be. Um, what happens, I like totally shut down, totally out of my control reaction. Like logically, it doesn't make any sense. I know that that's a great animal that's like good for the ecosystem. But if I see one, I like, I freeze, I shut down, like I can't, I either flee or I like become immobile. And um, it's a very like immediate reaction. Like I used to bike a lot and there were, I used to live in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is like beautiful college town, like looks really rural, even though it's technically a city and there's these great bike paths that run through it that's like the defining thing about the area so I would go biking a lot and if I saw a snake on the trail I would literally close my eyes and like pick up my feet and I can't help myself and I've like fallen off my bike for that reason it's just it's I mean it's frightening even like an animated one I don't understand it like doesn't make any sense but it's a very extreme phobia thankfully you live in an area where there aren't like snakes roaming around yeah there's like beautiful places in the world that I can't go to because I am afraid of encountering a snake. Are you talking about Australia? <laughs> like I went to Australia. Okay. I went to Australia for the first time last year for a tour and I had a great time, but I was having a better time when we were in like total city zone because I was like, I-, I won't see any of them here. It's very, very frightening to have any sort of phobia, especially one where, because a lot of people just have it for maybe just a picture of it, but they, yeah, and they know they'll even see a picture. 
Oh my god! What about like a tattoo? I don't like. I definitely don't like it in any context. Like if okay. I'm at a gas station and there's toy ones, even if Ew. they're like a plush toy. Oh, but those I hate are the it. worst. Oh, those are the yeah. worst because they look so realistic and they always look like they've no, been stuck. Even the ones that are like plush, like stuffed animal, like cute yeah. ones. Hate I can't look at that. Like it's not. There's not no aspect of like snake stuff that I'm really okay with. What happened when you were younger? Like, do you know where it came from? Well, apparently, there's certain phobias that can be hereditary. And oh. my grandmother had the same exact thing. And she couldn't even, like, read the word. I remember not being afraid of them as a young kid. I was fine with them. And then I encountered one when I was, like, 12 or something. And I just freaked out, had a bad reaction, and was crying and ran away. And since then, I just can't deal with them. And my mom lived in a really rural, rural area when mm -hmm. I was uh, in like middle and high school. And I remember once the cat like bringing one inside and dropping it at my feet as a present. And oh it was traumatic. <laughs> I really oh. can't deal with it very well. I mean, thankfully. <laughs> Even a dead one. Like, yeah, no, like no, I've no, seen no. dead ones and it's like just as bad. No, 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 no. I'm it's... not scared they're going to hurt me. I just can't. You my brain can't, can't handle it. Yeah. I mean, there is, there are things you can do, but in this case, I think that... I would have to like, handle one. That's the, yeah. that's the treatment. And well, I don't know... I mean, you I'm could like, do, you could have hypnosis, but I don't know how, like, comfy you are with the concept of hypnosis, let alone, like, the fact that somebody's, like, digging into your brain. I think I would do it. My mom did it to quit smoking cigarettes, and it was really yeah. effective, and she never smoked again. So I think mm. I'm, I'm open to it. I just have and explored it for some reason. Maybe this conversation will inspire me to finally get <laughs> over myself. I feel like thing. we've said the word so many times and I feel I know. like really bad for that because it's like... <laughs> but it's even like, I'm in like a, a memes text thread and everyone in the memes thread <laughs> knows to like not send snake ones and to or to warn me if one is coming through so that I can just like delete the thread. Is there anything else that you are, that you have the same reaction toward? Nope, this is the only thing. Oh my gosh. I think it, <laughs> it feels hereditary because it's so, so extreme. Yeah. And I, I love like bugs. I love like, like lizards are fine. Like everything else, anything else creepy and crawly is fine. It's just this one thing that logically, like I'm a vegan, I'm an animal lover. Like I think snakes are great. Like I think they serve a really important role. Like why do I, why can't I look at one? <laughs> I don't even hate them though. It's just like, I really, I hate my brain for having this weird hang up. You just said that you're vegan now. I'm not a full vegan, but I certainly, it feels like it's naturally progressing toward that. You're in a great city too for, yes, to, to be for, vegan adjacent. Absolutely. And I was living in, in Israel, um, reporting there for the last few years. And they also, that whole, they have a lot of meat centric national dishes but most of it, as because it's Middle Eastern and Mediterranean, it's mostly chickpeas, yeah. salads. You know, it's very easy to, you know, it's easy to shift into something without that pressure where it's just, you can't get something that you used to. But how do you do that then when you're touring? I think part of it is I've been vegan for so long. Like it's been, I had to look at what the year is. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's been close to 13 years at this point. Oh so I was gosh. vegan way before I ever went on tour. And 13 years ago, it was so much harder than it is now. Like, and when I became vegan, I was 17, I guess. And I had grown up. What's the joke that people like me, the joke that vegans make that I don't agree with, but they call it like the standard American diet, which is like sad. Oh, yes. <laughs> when I became vegan, I was eating just like pasta, like chip, just like carbs and starches. And I didn't really know a lot about vegetables. And as I got more and more into it, I became less reliant on the like meat and cheese substitute stuff, which I still like a lot. But um, I got really into like 
raw veganism and just eating lots of um, fresh vegetables and fruits. And so when I'm on tour, a lot of what I do is just go to grocery stores and like eat. Um, yeah, like plants. Um, so I think that makes it really easy. And then also like not only in the United States, like really all around the world, it's such a popular diet that it's really easy to find. Even if you're going out to eat, there's so many great vegan restaurants and even like, even like fast food places, mostly all have vegan options at this point. Is anyone else in your, in your crew or your band, any of them vegan as well? No, I mean, nobody in Speedy has ever been vegan. Like people have been vegetarian at times and then gone back to eating meat but I think everyone's pretty um not like health conscious but like nobody eats like shit okay, <laughs> you know they're aware of themselves I think you okay. kind of have to when you're on tour because it's so easy to get sucked into the eating fast food every day and then just feeling really bad like not feeling like you have the energy to play every night or wake up early in the morning to drive for eight hours so we all really like to treat ourselves well on tour and because I'm vegan I think we wind up eating at a lot of vegan or at least places that you know have clearly marked vegan options but then when I did the tour I, I did a side project last the last couple years that called sad 13 yes your solo work I love like a solo that. pop thing oh thanks and so the band that I had I had a couple different iterations of that band but like almost everybody was vegan or veggie and that was the first time I toured with people who like were also actively seeking out because like I'm psycho like the morning we leave one city I'm looking on Yelp in the next city yeah. to see what's on their venue and how what their hours are and whether I can just get it delivered to soundcheck or whatever yeah. <laughs> um, so it was nice to have bandmates who were like doing the same neurotic thing I've heard like horror stories of people not eating for like days because there's just nowhere to find any sort of food and I'm not talking about like people who are obsessed with organic or farm-grown produce yeah. or things like that I'm like just normal things other than chips or chocolates and candy and things like that sure. I feel like it's changing. Like I don't see as many 7-Elevens around. But when you're touring around the rest of the world, there's always going to be some sort of healthy option. As you said, like you can just go and get a bag of spinach or something. Yeah, exactly. I think just like knowing what your routing looks like. And there's certain stretches of the country where I know like, okay, this is going to be three days of like, <laughs> we're not going to see too much. So let's load up on groceries. Do you feel like you are the type of person to have a lot of energy on tour? Like I feel like I'm pretty low energy all the time. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Last fall, what I did, which was like, I, I do not regret it at all, but I probably wouldn't do it again is like Speedy did a, a long tour with this band Paramelos. And right before that, Sad 13 did a tour with Deerhoof. And then like right after that, Sad 13 did a tour with Ted Leo. And oh I wanted to do all those tours. And I think right before the Deerhoof thing, like Speedy had um, a couple dates, like festival stuff. And right before that, Sad 13, that was when we did the Australia tour. So I was just back and ping-ponging between the two projects over the course of like three, four months. And I realized that my brain just can't do that. It's like, I, I so admire people who play in like five bands and have, you know, that many sets memorized. But I'm like, I wrote all these songs and I can't even remember what's going on between well, the two. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't do that again. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I love that you said that like you don't regret it, which is really good. But obviously having... Because oh, yeah, I love all those bands. Like exactly. I was so happy and thankful to get to play with them and see them every night. 
But I was just like, I feel like I wasn't playing to the best of my ability because oh, yeah. I really need to like focus on one thing at a time. And I think that even just going through that process of finding that out is really admirable. Yeah. Like a lot of people are so frightened to just put themselves out there in any form. But a band can make you feel safe and comfy yeah. in that structure. Sure. And going out there on your own, you weren't ever on your own. You obviously had people with you. But going out there at marketing yourself you know, as the solo project, it does put a, a very different spin, especially because you're working with different people as well who can affect you. Yeah. That's something that I wonder about a lot. I mean, that's something I really liked about the Sad 13 project because on the record, it's really just me. I had a few different iterations of that band and um, getting to teach the songs to different people, but also learning how they play and learn just makes you more aware of like what you do and how you play off them and it was just really fun I, I really especially like two musicians in particular that I played with a lot on the sad 13 mm. stuff who've become like some of my best friends and favorite musicians and just like I had such a good time working with them that I really want to do another record just so I have more opportunities to play with them so it's like nice to come home to like my speedy bandmates who I know so well and have played with for years but um you get kind of comfortable playing with the same people like you know what each other's preferences and leanings are. Whereas like doing something all yourself, but then having to teach it to different people, like kind of stretches you in a way that playing oh, with one does not. And challenges you. And that creative chemistry, I think that little thing that like binds uh, creatives together, even if it's not just in music in any creative sense is a mysterious and very beautiful thing. Yeah. Like you can just hear that gut like gurgling when you meet somebody who you just connect with on that level. And I can't even imagine being able to share your songs it's all I mean I said before I hate music uh, I really don't <laughs> I really have had so much fun doing both of these projects and yeah it, it's so cool that I, I get to do that as my job at this point how focused on that band were you at the time when you created it because I know you were obviously in other different projects well it's kind of funny like Speedy or two started in sort of the same way that Sad 13 did which is that I had been in another band for for years and that band was more of a creative collaboration and I started Speedy Ortiz as a home recording project where I played all the instruments and then um, my bandmates were people I had known from other bands who had played with my old band. I just kind of like got some people to play some shows live who I had always wanted to play with and didn't really expect it to turn into a, a band and then it did and obviously I'm so thankful for that but it wasn't like it wasn't like four people sat out in a room like what do we want this thing to sound like it was like here's my solo thing like yeah Mike do you want to play drums on a show with me and then we liked playing together and we kept doing it and we we're like oh we should probably get a bass like Darl <laughs> do you want to play some shows with us like here's like a whole album that I did by myself you know we, we love playing with him yeah so it was like you know once we realized like oh it's fun these guys like playing these songs that I wrote like I love how they play like we should probably do something where they actually get to write parts and play and that that's sort of how it happened. So you were always writing but did the performance element of being a musician appeal to you as much as the writing when you were studying and Um I think just naturally if you're writing songs like you have to have a way to share them other than just recording. So I I've been I've been probably writing and recording much longer than I've been playing um shows but like when I was in high school, I would play shows with like different friends to, you know, play my songs out, whether that yeah. was at like community community centers, like I would play in like church basements and stuff like that. Um, VFWs, very much like the things that are open to you when you're a 
15 year old performer. And it's funny, like in high school, I was so different than I am now. Like I did, I sang in like children's choirs forever. And that was like, Oh, wow. I tore, I toured doing that. Oh my gosh. And I I like loved, I know it's really weird. Um, (laughs) It is strange. I I, like toured internationally, like singing in children's choirs. And I did that way before I was writing my own music. And, but I also did like musical theater and like acted in plays. And I think I really liked being on stage and felt like I had a good stage presence. And then like the second I went to college, something like flipped and I became really anxious on stage. And so I would have to like drink to play. <laughs> that would be fine because it wasn't my job. You know, it was like, I love writing and recording these songs and I guess I should play them live. So like, if I have a show, I'm going to drink and like have a good time. But when it turned into, and that was like probably how I operated from age 18 to age 20 four or 25. Mm. But when it became the kind of thing where I was playing, you know, 200 shows a year, like that's very different than playing a couple shows a month. And that's when I had to sort of reevaluate my relationship to drinking mm. my the relationship between drinking and like stage confidence. I didn't like feeling like I had to have this like substance in order to like play my music, which I love. Yeah. So that's when I sort of got more into like, I'd always played shows and played in bands, but I'd always like, um, well, I'm, I'm bringing up so many topics at once right now. No, no, but, no. Um, I'm like, this is so fascinating because I feel like there, there is something so alluring when you're a child and you get thrust into this like choir and theatrical performance because yeah. you have that camaraderie and also all those like different melodies and being dramatic. It really gives you a lot of confidence, even just to make friends to be part of something. It's just like a sports team. I think that those two are so similar because you're still going toward a goal, especially to like make people happy around you. And then I think like as when I went to college and I wanted to start doing, when I wanted to start doing shows like in New York or in Boston, that's so different than like the support you get as like a high schooler when you're like people are like oh it's so like cute and cool that this high schooler is doing this music like (laughs) once you're 18 you're you're judged on the same level as like every band in the DIY scene and I think that that's that's probably why I got that's like why I probably got into drinking like to have that crossover yeah I mean yeah to, to feel like I was part of that scene even like how I dressed became very much like wanting to feel like I fit in with like these dudes who were playing right you know heavy guitar music which is what I was doing so dressed like in like the punk uniform for that same range of time I'm talking about where I was wearing like black skinny jeans like a big t-shirt like a flannel like not probably vans like you know the same thing that every like touring punk dude wears and when I was 25 or 26 I was like I'm gonna quit drinking but I need something to like feel confident on stage. And that's when I got really into, and also like feeling resentful that I'd been dressing in this quote unquote oh, yeah. masculine way. Like, why did I have to do that to fit in? And I sort of flipped a switch and did this 180 and got really into ornate dressing for stage that was very feminine. And I felt really tapped into like over the top, like, you know, Disney princess outfits. I love it. Um, I love it all. Because I felt that I should have, you know, as a kid going to shows, like, um, I was so psyched when I got to go see like St. Vincent or like yeah. listening to like, you know, Mary Timoney and Helium and stuff like that. I was like, why am I trying to dress masculine when technical guitar playing shouldn't be related to that? So that's kind of why I started getting into I stopped drinking and I started like wearing glitter, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Stop drinking, started wearing or glitter. Then- like, and then like after a while, I started drinking again, but like so much less than I used to. Like I used to have to get drunk to play. 
And I oh. hate that, that I felt that way. It's so interesting because I you do, you do expect it, obviously, because like rock and roll and the music industry, it has such a bad reputation yeah. about like people getting up and getting totally shit faced and like giving the best performance of their lives. So they get hooked yeah. on that feeling. But you're actually not giving the best performance. No, you're just not like thank you. you're not hearing your own mistakes. <laughs> but also you're yeah. not living in a really I don't know. I haven't drunk for like six years now. Yeah. And I feel I feel like okay this is like a really weird visual but it's just in my head like you know when like something just feels really raw and like your skin is just I don't know just things penetrate the heart and the body much more than they did and yeah. I feel like I was asleep and living this like really weird life before I stopped and then everything opened up and I could just like I was like porous like I could feel like, and I still do I feel too much and especially to get up in front of people and not only share your life but also make an impact. I think that that's a... I mean, I know a lot of artists don't feel that responsibility. Do you think that like art is neutral in any sense? I think for some people it is, but I, I don't tend to like art that it is that way. And I yeah. definitely don't want to be making art that is that way. So I do feel... And this is like, really, I think the reason that I would drink at all is like, I have a hard time talking on stage. Like I just... Okay. I love to play and I can play, but I, it's like, like I really need a lot of focus to do it and to be playing guitar parts that are so different from what I'm singing. Mm. Um, there's a lot of like focus I need and I think I can look really boring on stage because I'm so focus concentrated on. on like trying not to fuck up this challenging music. So I think like part of drinking was like loosening up, like feeling like I could move around the stage and have something to say to people that wasn't just like wanting to play the next song. I, I think I love when I go to shows and someone says like, this is what this song's about. And they're kind of serious topics, what some of these BDRT songs are about. So like, it's been a real effort for me to focus on trying to, um, you know, say those things and, and say justice. what I justice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. People forget that so much. We like all want our artists to like be completely fully formed when they arrive on stage. And the truth is like yeah. anything can knock you off. I find it really fascinating that some people take it for granted that it all just comes easy. You know, like, oh, I get on yeah. stage and I'm like, and I'm not throwing shade at anyone, any artist that has ever told me that they get up there and kind of switch off. That is also yeah. that that is also a huge artistic leap. And I really, really do appreciate that sometimes. But the fact that like it doesn't come naturally to everybody doesn't mean it doesn't negate the fact that you're still incredibly talented. They're just such different things, I think. I think oh, that like writing and recording songs, like I do feel that that has always come really naturally to me. Like the second I started playing guitar, I started writing and recording music. And I feel like that's what I was, you know, if my brain was designed to do one thing, like that's what it is good at. Whereas like the performing of them is a totally different thing and that I've had to really work hard to, to make it look easy when it's like really hard for me you make it look so easy like I I, I love that you are like but like if you this, saw but... us five years ago it was like yeah I see videos of us five years ago I remember shows where I just like turned the microphone the other way oh and like God. didn't want to like face the audience or like I would go like when I was in high school I, I was just talking about this the other day to someone like I would always get like a dude to play like a second to play like guitar solos because I like didn't think that I could even though I could. So when I started, I, w I had been in this band that had been a four piece and there was always like a, a different dude to play like the guitar solos. And at some point we became a three piece and I was like, but I like wrote these parts like I can play them. You can do them. Yeah. So when I started playing like guitar solos in public, I would like turn around when I did it. And like my mom and, and um, 
my dad would always come see us play and they'd be like, why are you doing that? Like people want to see what you're doing. And I was like, oh, it's like too hard to like to face okay. people while I'm doing this thing that to me is like what I do in my bedroom. So it's really been like a big <laughs> retraining of my brain to like now if I'm playing a guitar solo, I'm like trying to lift the guitar in the air and do like, you know, stuff. Uh, <laughs> like a windmill with your arm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, Sadie, she's that person who does the windmill with her arm. Yeah. Um, were your parents always really supportive? Like when you first started out, especially because of how you've just described the scene, you know, you were going into a really obviously male dominated genre and then going into it as in somebody who was really confident with her writing. I'm sure you played places that they were like, no, this is not good. Like, <laughs> how how supportive were they? Like, did they always know, were you always clear in terms of what you were wanting to do? My mom was an artist and she was always a big cheerleader of me doing any of this stuff. And mm. she got me my first guitar. And when I was writing songs when I was 14, I would like play them for her first and she would come to everything. Um, my dad was a little bit more, I don't want to say discouraging, but when he was a kid, he had wanted to be a musician and be in the music uh, industry. And his family didn't really support that. And okay. he made a go of it. Like he, he did kind of work in, not kind of, but he worked in the music industry when he was, you know, in his early 20s and mm. probably late 20s. And then he kind of um, had to go into the family business. Um, and so I think there was a, like, he always had this split thing where he like, loved music and that was what had made him happiest in life and so he bonded with me over that like he would take me to he would sneak me into rock clubs when I was too young to go into them and yeah he loved going to shows and like feeling like a VIP but then he was like you have to have a real job like music isn't practical like mm. do you see what this industry is and anytime any kind of article went out about like how little money musicians made like he would be sending it to me <laughs> so it was really I think I think his impulse was to be supportive and but he was also he could be very real realistic I'll I'll say and he was right like it is such a crap shoot like and so it was really only towards I mean he, my dad passed away um a little over oh. 3 years ago you know like I was 26 at that time so I was like grown up but still still kind of on the young side to lose a parent so it wasn't easy he was so psyched when the first speedy album did well and the second record he just like always wanted to know every detail and sort of like to live vicariously through me getting to do the stuff that he had wanted to do. He was kind of critical of my first band and probably rightfully so. Like he would never pay me lip service. If he didn't think something was good, he would like tell me why. And if he thought something was good, that meant a lot. And he really loved mm -hmm. um, the Foil Deer record. He thought that was like the best thing I, I had ever done. Wow. So when that came out, it was kind of bittersweet because it was like the most success I'd had playing music and some of the biggest, like it was the biggest stages I'd played up to that point And getting festivals and doing all this touring stuff. And I sort of feel like, um, you know, me getting to do that stuff is like a nice um, tribute to him in a way. Like he oh, was so gosh, absolutely insecure, not insecure, but like it really mattered to him that, that I was able to have like normal day and desk jobs. Mm. And when I finally quit them because doing music was like becoming more profitable, -time, yeah. he was like, he was like psyched about that. So they weren't always like totally supportive. Mm. My dad always thought I, I spent too much time doing music and should have been doing something else. But then when it became my whole thing. life and job, he was like, oh, this is cool. And also the, the construct of like when he was younger trying to make it. N not to say that it's so easy now to be a musician, but your, your barriers to entry, there aren't as many anymore. 
you know, you can release songs wherever you want to now. Back in the days, there was a formula. You had to be yeah. a certain type of person. You had to fit the mold and you had to tour a lot. And that's not obviously easy for anybody. And back then, again, I don't know what his family did, but the mindset of like, I have to be in something stable that was crippling yeah. for a lot of and people. And he was like, he had played music, but he was really more interested in the the business side of things. I think there was just a lot more money being thrown around back then. Like he would tell me stories about artists he worked with. He had produced, I mean, so many different things that are really cool, like Devo, like um, he worked with Greg Jones. He worked with like James uh. Chance. So he, but there was just like, even for these kind of weird artists who still kind of made it in a pop sense, like there was so much money to be thrown around. And I think that was what made him really... Um, skeptical for me there's just no money in it but like that was never what I cared about or needed to get stuff done so it's just caution it's just caring about his little girl you know it's just like it's so I mean the you want to roll your eyes and you're like come on fuck like support but the truth is he thank god is coming from that place because you don't want that coming from anyone else but somebody who's like your blood you know it's like almost like they're right to tell you that you're doing things wrong somebody Um, somebody has to but like I got him to come to market hotel once which was like my favorite funny thing that ever happened like for people I guess who don't know it's like a DIY very DIY space at that time it must have been 2008 it's it's way more legit now than it was then it was just like a function hall that like there there was like a probably someone 19 serving like cheap vodka shots in a Dixie cup like not a real stage like everyone played on the floor and I got my dad to come there so he like he supported in his way did he ever tell you about like crazy tour stories that he had like if he was working with like Devo and oh yeah is there anything that like stuck out in your mind of like one of those stories where you like my dad was so cool. Um, what was the one? I feel like there's a story I have like when when he was because he told me these stories my whole childhood. But like you don't always retain the stuff that your parent is telling you. And you don't think that maybe there's an expiration date on getting to hear those stories for the millionth time. <laughs> yeah, you know, of course. like especially because he was kind of young. He had cancer that was very, very quick. Like he got diagnosed and then two months later he passed away. So it oh was two months like so I would quick. go hang out with him a lot. And he was just like, I'm going to tell you my whole life story. Like, take notes. So I have like a note, uh, like, a, like a Microsoft Word document. It's like me yeah. transcribing all the stuff that he was like frantically trying to tell me. But the one that he told me like his whole life, there was this thing he did with Devo where he produced a live, like a pay-per-view concert for them that was supposed to be in 3D mm. called 3Devo. And it was like this like historically train wreck performance where they, I think were playing to a track and they got out of sync with the track and like stormed off stage. And he had to like cajole them into going back on stage oh to finish God. out this thing that they'd already been paid a shitload of money to do. And his like theory was that they staged the whole thing on purpose. Like, Oh my God. He thinks that they staged going out of sync um, on purpose so that then walking off could be this dramatic thing. So oh. that was like one story that he loved telling. And he'd always be like, like it was always funny listening to his stories because he was a big time name dropper (laughs) up until like the end of his life like he lived he had known worked with like David Byrne and he would just say David like um, you're supposed to know that he means like David Byrne buds with David Byrne but like you wouldn't know that listening to him talk this podcast is like called after a talking head song I don't know yeah that's totally true um, this must be the place so yeah. is like the best yep. song. Or like Lou Reed. He'd be like, oh, like saw Lou today. Like Whoa. you're not friends with Lou. 
<laughs> Dad, um, cut it out. <laughs> I love that though. Like he had the right to say that, right? I mean, he he did yeah, work I mean, with those that, people. He knew them, sure. Yeah, but not hadn't he hadn't really since like way before. <laughs> he like blowing up his spot. Like shame. <laughs> <laughs> He would, yeah, he'd listen to this podcast and yell at me. Yeah, he'd be like, what the hell? You're giving all my secrets away. I knew Lou. I knew David. I knew Mark. He He really did. And in a way that I'm kind of antisocial and like, don't leave the house. My dad was like a social butterfly and remembered every person he ever met and like everything they ever talked about. So for him, even though it had been a while since he was so actively engaged in the music industry, you know, it had been 25 years more, it still felt very much like that was still his life. So I think that's why he was kind of keen on once Speedy Ortiz was doing well, he was like supportive. Yeah. And also just having somebody like that who knew what it was before you got into it. I think that must have been, and he must have been so proud that you also got into it the way that you did, that it wasn't contrived. It wasn't like asking him for contacts. Like you no, got into it funny, naturally. Like, now I kind of feel bad about this, but he he did really want to help. And I was very much like, I don't want your contacts. Like, I don't really want you to help in any way. Like, I want to feel that I don't want to feel like I've gotten any favors. And yeah, I think that I was always that. sort of a, a sore spot for him because he really did. That had been his life before I was born. And I think mm. he wanted to be able to feel more of a connection to what I was doing. And he wanted to be able to help. And I never really let him. And now, like, as I'm older, I'm like, why didn't I just let him? Like, But at the same time, then there's no question in my mind. Like, I didn't rest on his laurels or anyone's. Like, we don't even, my dad and I don't have the same last name. Like, it wasn't like I got anything we did was because of me, me being a workaholic rather than nepotism so that's cool exactly it might not have gone the way that you wanted it to or him like what if he like let you down you know sent it to somebody and then nothing happened or yeah can you imagine if like we'd done stuff something on a major label like it would be no you would be i I don't think we would be chatting probably he'd always be like you these songs when i was in high school he'd be like your songs are good like you should have someone else record them i'd be like It'd be such a, di- I don't know. No, it would be a whole different world. But I think he obviously, he obviously trusted you enough to let you carry on doing it, which is a huge compliment as well from somebody who saw the back end of the music industry. Yeah, for sure. And that, that I think alone, irrespective of all the things he was saying, it wasn't like, oh, this is a cautionary tale. It was like, you are my blood and you are my daughter. This is what happened. And also yep. telling those stories allowed him also to relive it as well, which is a huge compliment. Like, thank you for telling me that. Oh, I know yeah. that like, we um, are on opposite ends. It's not easy speaking about anything with regards to loss and things like that. And I really, I really appreciate you telling me about that. It's, it's really wonderful to hear about him as well. I love talking about my dad and um, because he was, I mean, even to my friends, he was kind of this like, larger than life figure and he loved he like I said he was very social and he loved knowing who my friends were and you know before he was sick like having my friends over and like getting drunk with my friends so I'm sure he'd be psyched and and you know because I miss him so much like we were talking about before with the sharing personal vulnerable stuff on social media like I do like to post about him every once in a while and it's really like a nice thing for me too when people comment or reach out to me that they've lost a parent and that just that they can relate and to know that I'm not alone in these feelings and that you know yeah so I I think that's something nice too sharing these stories I get to hear other people's stories about their parents which I always um 
really appreciate uh, having those shared with me. Absolutely. And obviously having somebody like that get to a level of success that I'm sure he not, you know, never expected, but I'm sure he Definitely. really, you know, <laughs> well, in, in a way of like, oh, this doesn't happen to anybody. And so I know that like, it sounds like he knew how hard things were. And the fact that yeah. you got it and you did it and you did it alone, that's a story in itself. Those like two months where he was able to like tell you everything about his life. Is that anything you would ever release or write about? Is that something? I've talked about it a little bit. I mean, you know, I think I, I bring up his stories um, when I'm asked and I think that he would he would appreciate that for sure. It's funny. He'd always talked about he'd always been like, I'm going to write a memoir of all this stuff. And he never got around to it. You know, we expected him to have a lot more time than he did. So I only kind of got the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure that if he'd had more time, he would have written something really interesting because he like his role wasn't like he wasn't like a producer. He was basically an A&R person. So his stories are really kind of tangential, but they cover so many different artists. Like he'd worked with country artists, he'd worked with blues artists, he'd worked with a lot of no wave artists. That makes it so much better because then it's not just, it's like a view into this world that has so many arms and stretches so far. Yeah, I've always kind of wondered like, you know, when right after he died was when the the Sufjan Stevens, like Carrie and Lowell album Uh... came out. And I was like, I wonder if I'll be writing about my dad. And I haven't, I haven't yet but I definitely want to. And I almost feel like I needed more time to process and be in a, of course, it's, I don't know. Just I, I didn't want to write from like an utterly vulnerable place. Yeah. I think that knowing that it's there is already something, you know, just acknowledging that there is something ready to come out and also how therapeutic it would be to possibly go through that process of just writing it. Have you written any poetry about it at all? Not really. No, I haven't written at all about, about my dad. And I, I, I do think I'll get there at some point. What was your very, very first concert? Was it with him or your mom? Well, I definitely went to stuff when I was like a little baby before I remember. Like I know that they, because I grew up in New York City. So we went to like Summer Stage as a series they do in Central Park. And I know, I remember seeing like Cheryl Crow when I was pretty little. But the first show that I remember like, asking my parents to take me to, which I realized today, we're recording this April 6th. It was April 6th in the year 2000. So 18 years ago, I made my mom take me and two of my best friends to see No Doubt at the (gasps) Roseland Ballroom. And it was right before, they were like my favorite band. Favorite band. And had been. My favorite band too. Had been since Tragic Kingdom. So favorite band. Yeah. From like 1995 (laughs) until that point, that was my favorite, favorite band. The best band. I was like 11, I guess. Um, I was, I would have turned 12 that year, but not yet. Um, So we went to go see them right before Return of Saturn came out. And that was my first like club show. And it was amazing. I I could find, I looked it up today because I was like, I wonder if the set list is online and I found it. Oh my God, Um, is the set list online? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, I'm actually going to look at it now. I had to dig into like a blog entry about the Roseland Ballroom closing to find it, oh but I, I can send you it. I found the set list. Please send it to me. Or you could yeah. do you have it in front of you now. <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear it? Oh my God. Yes, obviously. Obviously. I love it. They, they opened no with New, oh, which, which I love. The, which so was much. one of the greatest um, of, the, yeah, yeah. of that album. And I, bought, I remember buying the Go soundtrack because that was on it. Um, <laughs> I love that and movie. They did, <laughs> yeah. They did Sunday Morning. They did Bathwater. Which is also great. Different. Magic's in the Makeup. Just a Girl. Comforting Lie. They did a lot of like slower, like sadder songs from Return of Saturn, which is funny. They did Marry Me. They did Happy Now. They did Total Hate, which I love. 
And I wonder who likes saying the like Bradley Knoll part, but they did you staring problem. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Oh, they did don't speak. They did ex-girlfriend. I love that song. I hated it when I first heard it, but then I got into it. It was because what, of the, Yeah, I hated it first, but then obviously it fits so well on the album. I can't remember. I think it was the first song on that album on, on Return yeah, to Saturn. I was, need to look it up. I think it was his first single too. And I it was one of the first songs I learned on guitar actually. Oh my um, gosh. Because I started wow. learning guitar like right after this record came out. And I remember buying the like tablature book of all the songs. And then the encore, they did Simple Kind of Life and Spiderwebs. So Loved amazing set list. And Tony, or not Tony, Adrian um, would always Adrian like, Yang, yeah. he would spit during the shows, like <laughs> down to like a thong. Um, and what? I remember we were, we were in the balcony of the Roseland ballroom. We had like, my mom, my mom had also worked in the music industry and she like a little bit different than my dad, but she um, had always had friends who still worked at all the clubs in Manhattan. So for some reason, I think we had VIP tickets. So we were up in the balcony, like right by the stage, right. And I remember I could basically see Adrian from the side and you could see his penis. And it was like the first time. I mean, I was like 11. I had not seen one of those. And I was like, oh, one I was those. like a little freaked out. <laughs> yeah, like almost expect, okay, now every time somebody plays drums, you'll have to have to see that. I'm like surprised I you weren't like, like scarred yeah. for life. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. But it was amazing. So that was my first club show. And it's funny, like my mom, like I said, I was having surgery. My mom was um, taking care of me. And like when I was kind of finally, the first night I was like healed enough to go out, my friend Johanna Warren was doing this tour where she's doing like a plant medicine tour where she goes and plays. She does, She's kind of like a folk musician. She's yeah. playing in different houses and having um different like plant medicine growers and sellers like at, at each show. Wonderful. So I took my mom to her first house show like a week ago. Oh my God. Um, and that was what it was. And I was like, Mom, you took me to my first club show. Like 18 years later, I'm taking you to your first house show. But I mean, and, and also just sharing that experience and showing her that a house show doesn't have to be like totally raucous. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't come see us play at a house because it would just be like chaos. Yeah, no, and you wouldn't want her to. But it just had like seats. It was so lovely. Oh, okay. is she touring still? I think she's on a really long tour doing this. And I love that you took your mom and then also had that experience. Did she remember when she took you to see No Oh, Doubt? of course. Yeah, 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 of course. Oh. And my mom is like, an ex-punk who's really cool. And... I love that that was your first. I know. I know. I'm so lucky. I feel like people don't appreciate them as much as they should. That was one of the first CDs that I ever got, Tragic Kingdom. Yeah. They didn't like have many C- CD stores in South Africa. So like yeah. you had to like get people to bring you CDs. And that was that and Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Those two like mm-hmm. weirdly were living in like oh and Spice Girls. They were like living in the same shrine in my bedroom. Yeah. She was filled with a lot of hope it always made me feel smarter older like all those feelings that you want when you're a child you want to be like that rom-com thing I told like we were talking about earlier it like makes you want to experience those feelings of like love and And it's funny like I'm I'm 29 now yeah um, so I am my Saturn is returning (laughs) and I have been going back to that record and it's still really it's like really good When are you turn? Are you turning thirty this year? Yeah, I turn thirty in a, in a few months. When when is your birthday? It's July eighth. I'm a Cancer, which is why I don't like leaving the house. Oh my gosh, that's a day before my husband. Really? Oh yeah. Oh. There's no way that I would work with any other sign. I'm, I'm what are a, you? a Scorpio. 
Yep, so, Scorpios and Cancers do you well. You knew that though. I'm sure you knew that. Well, you... my dad was a Scorpio too. That is really, really wonderful to hear. They are yeah. a certain type. Like, I feel like when you were talking about him, I was like, I know that person. Uh-huh. There's this like level of intensity. And I mean, we're good people. We love we love intensely, which is yeah. sometimes to our detriment, but we never see it that way in the in the moment which I think is a beautiful thing. Like there's never a moment of like, am I doing the right thing? You know, it's always just, Mm -hmm. there's always that self-reflection after you have that Hulk moment, which is what I call (laughs) those breakouts. A good Scorpio (laughs) breakout. Going back to that first concert, did you find Gwen Stefani's stage presence? Did she perform the way that you thought like live performers should perform. Totally. And like, I mean, I definitely had seen every No Doubt music video. And like, so I kind of knew what I was getting into. But I definitely never thought I mean, I was like, definitely like a fat kid. I did not I was not a self confident person, not only not for that reason alone, just like kind of an insecure, sensitive person. And I didn't have a lot of friends at that time. I had like two friends and they were twins and they didn't really have friends either. And that's like who went to the show with me and my mom. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so like definitely seeing her wearing these like outrageous outfits, like that was not something that I really thought was open to me because of just like body shame that you get oh, yeah. when you're dragged young. into when you're that young. Oh, and even gosh. as an adult, like I'm a fairly thin person now and I still have a lot of those hangups, even as like a fat positive person. But I definitely dyed my hair pink and my mom helped me do it (laughs) after that show. Oh my God. Um, I wish like my mom was cool, but she, I grew up in a Jewish home. So my mom was like, you can't have any piercings, no tattoos. So I still don't have my ears pierced. I like, I have to wear clip-ons, which look, it makes like life a lot. It makes it fun because every clip-on has a story. And um, most of them are given to me by my friends whose like grandparents have, passed away and then they're like here are my grands oh I I mean I love costume jewelry like that um but it's funny like my dad was was Jewish and my mom was Catholic uh, or she is I mean neither of them you know secular more so in like social upbringing so I definitely always did like Jewish holidays with my dad's family but my mom an ex-punk like my mom has a tattoo and has like five holes in each earring and I definitely (laughs) went that same route so like I remember getting a tattoo and my dad being like well now you can't go in the cemetery. No, you, you cannot be buried as a Jew. <laughs> yeah. To go back to your first memory really playing in your bands, did you feel like you were channeling some of the performers that you had watched? Like, how did you know how to move? No, not at all. I just like to stand there. Was there any show that really stands out where it kind of, everything shifted and you felt very comfy? I remember, well, like seeing other bands like or, or playing with friends bands and touring with friends bands, I would be like, oh, this is that person's one move. Like, I'm going to try that. <laughs> like, I definitely remember like seeing Super Chunk and Mac is like pogoing over the stage and me being like, I could do that. Just seeing different like, you know, really minor gestures other people make on stage. I had one friend... Um, in a band that we toured with a lot who would like shake his head like from side to side while he was doing something (laughs) cool on guitar and I was like okay like I will robotically incorporate that in so it was always kind of like aping these minor gestures that I I would see my friends or bands I liked doing on stage but nothing super dramatic and then um, I think like when I talked about before when I stopped drinking for a long time right when the foil deer record came out 
that was when I was like, I have to be doing something on stage. And I started doing, like, we toured with X-Hex, Mary Timini's new band. And she oh always was just gosh. the back-to-back thing. And I was like, cool, like, I will do that forever now. So that's always like, if I'm not singing, I want to get as far away from the microphone as possible. Like, I want to interact bandmates and that foiled year record when we were touring on that was when I started incorporating more of these moves or like getting on the ground with my knees and adjust pedals with my feet like lying on my back that kind of thing but I mean you've gotten you just mentioned XX now and I know that it just reminded me that you've opened for like indie rock royalty like the breeders and I'm so lucky even Malkmus I know that that happened as well because our first all of our support tours that we had done we're like, first we did Thurston and Moore, then we did the oh Breeders, then we did even Malkmus, then we got to do the tour with, with Mary Timoney, like, and my mom was like, which of your 90s heroes are left? And I <laughs> named, like, two people, and I don't want to say who they are, because literally, like, three days ago, I got an offer from, like, maybe my biggest 90s hero, oh, um, and Wait, it's not announced, and I can't say, but, like... I can't even imagine the feeling, let alone working with uh, legendary people but also playing with them on the same stage and to become friends with them later like oh, all yeah, of yeah, these pretty much everyone we just mentioned like <laughs> I'm still in touch with and like hanging out with like it's surreal if you had told me if you had told me 10 years ago that like when I play Portland I would get to hang out with Stephen Malkmus no, I would have like shat myself like <laughs> I would have been like, you're pulling a leg, like get out of my life forever. I don't take that stuff for granted. It's still so surreal to me and just so, so validating. Like anyone who likes my music, is, it's really validating. I love hearing from fans and people who become my friends because they're of fans course. like yeah. or people who are connected to my music in any way. Like I feel so grateful. But to know that the people who inspired me when I was first playing think I'm doing something right, that's like you couldn't ask for more. Is there a show that you remember something happening in terms of like them giving you advice or I don't know something that you learned from them as well yeah I think I learned from every every band we tour with whether it's like you know someone we're supporting or someone who's supporting us for example like we talked before about the importance of the stage banner meaning something like we had downtown boys open for us on a tour and Victoria um, their front person is just the most eloquent incisive speaker and before they launch into a song she'll be like you know she'll have an anti-capitalist speech prepared that's like really moving and you can see people connecting to and certainly like I learned a lot from from doing a tour with them we had Mitski open for us on a tour who's like just one of the most amazing writers and performers wonderful yeah watching the the seriousness that she lens to each performance like I think sometimes my impulse is to treat things casually and not be self-serious but there's a lot of strength in allowing silence to happen and I don't know just knowing that what you're saying is important and I think I learned a lot from watching her too like and then of course like the people we mentioned before like I definitely got really good advice from the members of the Jicks just being on tour with them and also seeing how they they treat each other on tour. I think when you watch musicians who've been doing it for 30 years almost, like there's a reason they're able to have careers with longevity. And that was a big reason that I slowed down on the drinking too. Like seeing um, the bands that I grew up with, like they'll have some fun, but they're not getting wasted. Like it's not sustainable to do that. They treat themselves well. They have like fun on tour. They go like bowling, like remembering to make space for that kind of stuff. And one piece of advice that just because we're talking about the jicks like I remember um 
getting advice from Steve that I thought was really helpful. And he was like, because we both got um, pneumonia on a tour, on that tour. Oh my God. I didn't cancel any shows, like neither did he. I'm very inclined to play through sickness. But um, we had some radio session that I was debating whether or not to cancel. Like I had pneumonia, like why would I not cancel it? And he was like, I would have a longer career than I'm going to have if Pavement had said no to more radio sessions. Like you can't exhaust yourself saying yes to everything. And I've kind of taken that to heart. And I'm still like a chronic overworker, but I try to be more mindful of like my body's limitations and remembering that not every like press and radio opportunity is it's not going to be make or break. It's nice when you're able to, because I enjoy doing that stuff, but I don't want my like health in the long term to suffer because of saying yes. Absolutely. And you aren't you aren't going to be functioning at your full capacity if you have none left. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in hindsight, that seems like, of course, that makes so much sense. Why would you ever go on a radio show with pneumonia? But when you're young and eager, you exactly. just like want to do everything. You're like, I don't know how long this is going to last. I should do it all. And I think it's better to have the mindset of like, you could be doing this forever. Like, pace yourself. Exactly. When you get obviously you're on tour a lot. And now you have yeah. a tour coming up in a few weeks. Do you ever get any time to kind of go bowling and take time it's off? It's so funny that we're talking about this. The bowling, <laughs> that you know how I said that the Roseland Ballroom show was the, was April 6th? Yes. So today is Speedy's drummer's birthday. Ah, and when we, when we went bowling birthday. with the Jicks, it was for his birthday. Oh, my gosh. So same day. This is a very good day. Wow. Yeah, seriously. serendipitous. Was there ever a show, especially like having played with people that you really admire, was there a show that had the entirely opposite effect? It taught you a lot, but you never want to happen again. This is the thing. I'm so self-critical that I think shows are terrible all the time. And I'll come off stage. Like I'll go, I go, I usually sell merch for us after we play because I like to get to meet you know, get to meet the people who came and stuff and like sign records and stuff. And I'm really bad at disguising my own disappointment, (laughs) which is like the worst thing you can do. So I'll get off stage thinking like that was the worst show we've ever played. And (laughs) people will come be like, that was so great. I'm like, yeah, sorry, it was terrible. They'll be like, what are you talking about? So I always do that annoying thing being like, oh, it was bad. But it's really never as bad as you think it is. To me, it'll be like I flubbed one thing early on. And so then I'm in a bad mood the entire set. So I think it's just like terrible. But it's not really. It's I'll see a video later and it'll be it'll have been actually a good set. But there are certain things that like we've learned from where maybe like a certain stage, like you just get used to figuring out what you need to recover from the stuff that will inevitably go wrong. If, for example, like I can't hear Mike, our drummer, and I can't hear each other well enough, like things are bound to go awry because we just won't be in sync with each other. And you sort of learn like for this kind of room, I'll need to have him in my monitor a certain way or we'll need to angle things a certain way so that we can make eye contact with each other once in a while. It teaches you how to prepare better next time because stuff's always going to go wrong, especially when you're playing this many shows a year is there like a venue or a festival like I know that you mentioned you went to Australia for the first time last year yeah like is there a place that really just blew your mind like in terms of the acoustics of the venue the people in the audience like is there something is there a show that really stood out where you felt like wow this is what it's meant to be like um I mean different places like uh on tour my favorite place that we've been lucky enough to play was Mexico City. I fell so in love with it. I loved everyone who came to see us. We played a festival there. I feel like 
I just really became very quickly attached to that city and felt really at home. And I got to go back there this year, actually. I got to go on vacation, um, which was great. It was great to get to go there not for work and sort of know that the the warm feelings I got from it just from playing a festival or were true even as a, <laughs> yeah. even as a tourist. I always love, I mean, we, I keep bringing up Chicago because you live there, but that's always a, a favorite for us on tour. I feel that Chicago has always treated us really well. I love, you know, we always played Empty Bottle uh, forever. And that's such a legendary venue that I knew about way before we ever, I ever went to Chicago. We played Talia Hall last time, I think, that mm. we had a headline show. And that place sounds amazing. Like, And I always love the venues that have like a nice kitchen. Like that's such a nice gesture when you're on tour. Like like we said, like, you know, you can buy groceries, but it's not going to feel as nice as like a, a great meal. And they really have a nice kitchen. That was cool. I don't know. So many places. I'm really grateful for everywhere we get to play, even like the really small cities. Like I love playing like Kansas City. Like I kind of I'm pretty happy on tour to get to see different places. And um, I love the small cities as much as like the huge venue cities. And I love that you mentioned earlier about like meeting people as well, because I think that yeah, and naturally, I, I totally get it. When you get to a certain point, there's only so much of yourself that you can give. And I know that a lot of artists that I've spoken to, they certainly want to like have that space between them and their fan and not in a way of like, I don't, don't touch me. I can't have your like fan juju on me, but more like (laughs) they just feel exhausted after they perform. You know, I'm sure you felt like that as well. But the fact that like you are so involved in every aspect of the bands that you're in is a really, really rare thing. And I know that your fans are so loyal. Has there ever been a situation with a fan where you're just like, this is this is the reason why I do this? Definitely. Like, and it's I become friends with our fans a lot of the time. That's pretty, pretty normal for me. Like there's one, I hesitate to, to call her a fan because she's my friend at this point, <laughs> yeah. but I had never met her when we first met. And she just gave me a letter talking about representation and visibility and um, how she had started playing in rock bands because of seeing Speedy Ortiz. And wow. she was underage at the time, like she's not now. But that just like meant the world to me. And there have been a few times that someone has given me a letter after a show that says something like that. And that's always like knowing that you inspired someone to start playing and do something that they incorrectly felt that they couldn't do, like that feels really, really good. So yeah, th- th- that's always really meaningful to me, like meeting young fans who started playing because of the band. Um, or sometimes people will come up and tell me like that a certain song helped them through something difficult in their life. Like people have told me that raising the skate helped them quit a job, which is like really cool to hear. <laughs> um, like a job that they should have quit, not that they, you know, did impulsively, but that their working conditions weren't good and that they hadn't felt good sticking up for themselves. Um, so stuff like that is always awesome. And But then there's also like really fun stuff. Like um, there are two dogs now that I, uh, are named after me. Um, uh. One of them, <laughs> one of them is this corgi that you can find on Instagram. Oh my God. Her name is Sadie Dog Pui. Oh and um, <laughs> I check up on this dog like every day. And I met Sadie Dog Pui's um, dog parents at like a, the last time we played LA. And that was pretty cool. So like we have fans, but I become fans of them as well and like aware of them and I definitely love to to meet people in that way and that's why I don't leave the house when I'm at home because I did all my socializing for the year (laughs) yeah I was gonna say like you've you've like it's like a battery power like you're full (laughs) like the pack is full but did you did you were you like that when you were a fan when you were younger like did you ever go way backstage and like 
get the autograph and want somebody to sign something? Like how connected were you to the stars that you were a fan of? A little bit, but I think a lot of the people that I always became big fans of were like not so much, like I think I'm a nerd. So I would get into stuff that wasn't that popular. So it was a little easier or like popular on like an indie college radio, like the same level that Speedy is, you know? So it would be easy for me to go take a picture with someone at that level, which is a little bit different from like, like, I don't know why we keep, I keep talking about the Jicks, but I went to go yeah. see them a million, a million times, so many times. And I never like waited around for a photo. Someone that I did, this band Menomina, did you ever get into them? Yes. Where, yeah. Where did they go? They, they're not doing stuff right this moment, but um, Danny from Menomina plays on one of the songs on the new record. Oh, which song? Villain. Oh my gosh. I love that track. We'll be out as a single like in a week. I have a photo of him that like we became friends a few years ago, but I went to see Menomina probably like 20 times before I ever met him. And I definitely made him take a fan photo with me. And <laughs> it's I'm like 20 years old and I look so funny. Like I have <laughs> huge like curly hair and like glasses and I'm wearing Birkenstocks. Like I don't look the same. Yeah. And I and so psyched, like grinning ear to ear. And he just looks normal. He's just like taking a photo. Yeah, he's like, there's a fan. But it's next really, to me. really funny. And I haven't met Connor Oberst, but I became good friends with, um, you know, Mike Mogus of yes. Bright Eyes, uh, mixed our, our most recent record. Oh, um, yes. And I'm friends with all the people like Rob Nansel, who runs Saddle Creek, and a lot of the people who work there. And um, we toured with uh, The Good Life as well, Tim Casher's band. So there's a photo of me. This is what a show my dad took me to. Yeah. My dad got me into some Bright Eyes show that I should not have been able to go to when I was like 15. <laughs> and I there is a photo of me with Connor Overs, and I am just like the most excited 15 year. Oh my god! Uh, I have to see this photo. It's really, it's really funny. I'll, <laughs> I'll find it. And I put po- I posted online like every time we go to Omaha. Um, <laughs> and like I've been in. I I still haven't met Connor Overs, but I like my friend is his roommate. So I've like been in his house and I'm like, it's so funny that this photo of me exists when I have so many. I can't wait until you take, you meet him and you need to hold the photograph it's and then me, somebody like, needs to take a photograph of you holding the photograph. I don't of you really get that starstruck, but I mean, we've been in the same room a couple times and I'm too scared to say. No, but I like keep it. It's like your little like, yeah, I unicorn. Like, I like keep him, him safe. Yeah. No, like you'll, you'll meet him when the time's right. I know that you mentioned Mike working on your record, but also, you had Emily mastering the record, and like she is yes. such a legend. And yes, this is the third record we've done with her. She's I'm like amazing. such a big fan. I, I really, um, and she's just cool. Like her whole, I feel like more people need to interview her about her life. I feel like we're very similar. She played in bands and fronted a band that she won't let me listen to, but she's like, <laughs> it's really similar to Speedy. We, we have this kind of similar taste, and I feel like I could see that becoming my path as I kind of get more interested in production. Like, if I had to guess what I'd be doing 10 years from now, I think I'd, I'd like to be working in a studio. So I, re- I really view her as um, she's a real role model to me. And I just feel so thankful that she's in my life and is my friend. And yeah, gets to, we get to have her work on our records because I'm just such a fan of what she does. And she works on so many diverse things. Like she, she'll do a huge pop record and then she'll also do uh, bands like us. how the passion like fuels the decisions that she makes in terms of who she works with. And that totally for any outsider is always, you always appreciate that because you never want somebody to, you know, not sell out, but you never want somebody to go along a path that you know they don't feel comfy in. And the fact that like yeah. she gets to work. Yeah. I mean, she has her choice of projects for sure. Like, 
She works with like, you know, the, the Foo Fighters. Well, Dave Grohl will like fly in on a private jet to go like work with her. And then she'll also do like, you know, she'll have me and like Mike from Speedy like sitting on her couch while she works on our record. Like, I think she treats everything with the same enthusiasm. Like, even when she's working on these huge records, like she does Sia and she does Haim and she loves, she's so passionate about um, those projects. And then even when she's working with little bands like us, she's really passionate and paying attention and has ideas and I, I recommend her to everybody I know I just think she's the best so tell me quickly a little bit about the new album Twerpvis which I love the name I read like I usually don't like to read the bios because at least not before I've listened because it kind of yeah, informs my cool. I like that and not to say like I have friends who write the most beautiful bios not to say that that's not an art in itself, but I certainly like to form my own opinion just because I'm, as I said, I'm poor. So like I can suck things up in a way that like doesn't leave me sometimes. I did find it interesting about reading up a little bit that you scrapped the plans for your record. Oh yeah, we recorded a whole record and we got rid of most of it. But then then you wrote (laughs) something, an album that had social politics at the core of it, which I find is you were really honoring where you were all at, which I think is really, really important. Not to say like the artist has the responsibility because there's a platform, but to be honest, you kind of do. And the fact that you are open to intertwining that within your own stories, like Villain, for example. Well, it's funny. Villain is actually, Villain is one of the few that we kept from the original past. Um, And that's because it did feel really important to, to put out. Yeah. But it feels, it fits so perfectly because yeah. of the the themes of that song and tackling that on a public platform. It's really important to call that out as well. And that happens sure. all the time to so many people. But you delivered it in such a way that it's it's easy to hear. You know, like there's so many darker, heavier things that you can attack. And the way that you've done it on this album allows it to be a little bit lighter and I think that's why like I mean everything I'm writing from on the record is from you know it's hard to write outside of your own experience but for the same reason that I was like my dad passed away three years ago like I haven't written about it yet but I will I think like even some of those songs are written about stuff that happened years ago but I didn't have the understanding or strength to have processed it enough to write it and I finally felt ready to do that on on this record so that's kind of where some of those came from do you see musicians ever coming back from that kind of wake-up call like if things change in the next three years politically do we just go back to having a more personal and introspective take on things or do you think that it will stop coming in waves and just lean more towards that urgency and that fury that I know everyone irrespective of whether you're an artist feels it's hard that's hard to say like I don't anybody who has an identity that fits outside of the like mainstream narrative of who has access to rock music. Anyone who's writing something personal who is a queer person or a person of color or a woman, I think you're always going to, there's going to be some kind of political angle to what you're saying just because your identity has been excluded. And so injecting it in there is, is radical in its own sense. But I certainly have like so little patience for music that's about nothing. <laughs> like I think that a lot of the music that, especially in Obama's second term, like we really got into chill wave. We really got into like beachy, like you know stuff like yacht that. Just, what was it about? Like, I, and don't get me wrong, I love me some yacht rock. 
but I just, I think that we really wanted lyrics that were chill and vapid and um, almost like consumerist in this way. And that was never music that I was really into. So I love that um, we're seeing less of that now. And obviously, I, I really hope and believe that there are going to be radical changes to how our government operates here, how the government operates in the, the UK, like how we operate with regard to our foreign policy. Like, I, I would love for there to be less um, horrors to, to write about, but there's always going to be work to do and, and things we can do better. And as our like collective culture backs away from some of the oppressions we engage in, certainly we're going to notice that some of our behaviors could improve. And I think that's, that's human. Like there's always going to be something we can do better. So I don't think that there's ever going to be like no need for political music, but certainly like it's sad that we're in a place where I don't know, there's so much horrifying stuff going on that there, it does sort of feel like there's no room for, for art that doesn't interact with it in some way. And that's, you know, that's also problematic in a sense. Because people do need, need escape. People do, do need fantasy and, Absolutely. you know, chill plays. People need chill waves. People need chill uh, and real housewives of New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just don't want to make it. Like, I'd rather let someone else do it and I can enjoy it from afar. Absolutely. And I think that it doesn't, it certainly fits. It's like you were called to take this role and you have fully fallen into that in a way that doesn't seem, it never seems aggressive. It just seems urgent and in, a, in the most beautiful way. And you obviously never want to make anyone feel isolated or excluded, tackling something in such an honest way, it shows, it's, it's genuine. People feel that in their gut when they listen to it, and especially with the new album, it just aligns with everything that I think people can't put into words. I can't even imagine how many people are going to feel not only inspired, but just welcome to feeling. Yeah, and also like the same stuff that, like I said, I'm always writing from my own experience, and I'm just writing about the things that make me stressed out every day, and I think you know, certainly when I hear a song that I think reflects my anxieties, I, it makes me feel empowered to work through them. And I hope that our, this music can do that for some people who are, I'm sure are having the same panics that I am every day. Yeah. And that's why I think we tried to make it a really fun sounding record, even though the subjects are serious because exactly. um, you don't, it's not that I don't want to be heavy handed, but I just don't see the point in that. I don't think that just really heavy messages with really like downtrodden sounding or aggressive sounding production is I don't know that's not the way that I want to absorb a message and it's not the way I want to put one out either like I keep talking about Jane the Virgin because it's on my mind it's such yeah. a like a fun full, like bright fantasy show but they're talking about immigration policy like I, I think that um having something that makes you feel good but also makes you think about what you can do to make your world better that's like my favorite kind of art so i hope that we succeeded in doing something along those lines no you really didn't have and i love that you brought up that there's that sound that feels a bit more uplifting and that you need that duality especially in this landscape that people need to almost be like dancing away their pain and so it totally fits yeah. it makes sure that you're also having fun which sure that's a selfish thing but you need to be able to deliver this message without letting it kind of wash and shade over people in a way that makes us feel, and I say us because I listen to your music as well, you know, it makes you just feel like you've been knocked down like a hammer and into the ground. Yeah. Like sometimes I totally embrace music that makes me feel terrible. I love it sometimes. Yeah, um, same. <laughs> I mean, I love to wallow. Me I too. just like, yeah. 
<laughs> but there, there is a moment, especially with allowing these songs to breathe in such a way that I think you really have, you really have done that. But so, and last thing, if you had a time machine and you could go to any concert in oh history, I mean, don't ask me what I would do. That's really hard. No. Oh my God. I feel so much. <laughs> this is really hard. Who would I want to see? It'd be pretty cool to see like, it'd be pretty cool to see like Carol King on like tapestry. Wow. <laughs> is, that a, is that a cool answer? I mean, it's an answer. I think like I watched the Broadway show of her it's writing. Not, it's not too late to see her, I guess, but <laughs> yeah. it'd be cool to see her so early in her career when she was already like writing hit songs for other people, but like just kind of coming into her own as a solo artist. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> you were like no I can't think of this I mean as I said there's no way I could answer that but, but... in my mind like I wish I like like I said overworker I like wish I had this answer because I would just be researching like every <laughs> weird tour package in history like if I knew that like Carol King had like done one show with like Aretha Franklin like that would be you know like I want to know what the whole lineup is and oh there is one show that I've thought about like all the time I'm pretty sure I gotta, I gotta Google this real quick go, and make sure that this. Go for it. Don't worry. We, we are. But I'm pretty sure. I remember reading in like an old copy of like the Boston Phoenix, which doesn't exist anymore. That was like the All Weekly, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's like a Mary Lou Lord, like Lou Barlow, and like Elliot Smith show. No, that that's in your. You were telling me about a dream you had. That's not a real I think thing. It's real. Let me just. I'm trying to find it for sure. There's a show that's Mary Lou Lord. Slim Moon and Elliot Smith, but I'm pretty sure there's one with Lou Barlow and there's like YouTube video of it. There's there's definitely a video of like Elliot playing at Lou Barlow's birthday party. Oh <laughs> like This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the kickback for our theme song, Rube and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at TMBTGPod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again and I miss you already. Consequence Podcast Network.